Hello and welcome to Made Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Ashley Colby. She's an environmental scientist and the co-founder of the Rizoma Field School. We spoke about the fact that our modern way of life is completely environmentally unsustainable and Ashley's uh, related decision to uproot her family from America and move to a homestead in Uruguay and why domestic roles in the homesteading life are completely different from those in the modern West when it comes to the gender division of labour. In the extended version of the episode, we also spoke about uh, Ashley's uh, educational philosophy and how we can all apply some of the insights gleaned from homesteading to the rest of our lives. As usual, you can find an extended version of this episode plus bonus episodes and the Maiden Mother Matriarch chat community at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com. Enjoy. So Ashley, let's start by talking about the link that you see between environmentalism and uh, women's rights. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so um, a little bit about my background. I am a sociologist by training. I have my PhD in sociology and um, I focused on environmental sociology for my PhD studies. And um, in the process of getting my PhD, um, I, I did a deep dive on um, for my dissertation work on people who self-produce food and and kind of just um, ended up coming to this larger scale, almost Marxist um, uh, historical understanding of um, the process by which humans lived in most of civilization um, and how different it is now um, in, in the industrial era. Um, and so long story short, my dissertation work sort of focused on this, this re-embracing of what is, um, I think most, our most common way of, of interacting with nature in, in most of human civilization, which is to have some amount of self-production, some amount of, um, connection to, to the land through, activities in the home, you know, home economics and, and small scale food production and um, other kind of craft economies. Um, that ties in with this larger scale critique I have that kind of the, the best um, language I've ever heard uh, of this critique is basically Paul Kingsnorth, um, his con concept of the machine. Um, and basically the machine is, is, in the in the broadest possible sense, the uh, the industrial technological civilization. Um, I think a lot of people just don't really realize because it's been a couple of generations for most of the developed world living in this advanced economy that this is really um, the anomaly mm -hmm. in most of human history. Um, most of human human history wasn't lived this way, and so. Um, that that machine critique kind of fits into my 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 work all over the place. You know, I'm I'm interested um, in my academic research on on food systems, but I think in my life I've taken that similar critique to women's 
issues to family life um, on a personal level. Um, so I think about the ways in which um, the 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 thrust of industrial technological civilization um, is in many ways about putting you know every aspect of human life into the marketplace as as possible um, to make these Faustian bargains of advancing technological civilization at the expense of any any of the above. Um, and so I, um, yeah, so I think the, the connection is this, this idea of um, the ways in which the, the machine and advanced technology kind of have its tentacles in so many aspects of our life. In some ways, it's even hard to see. It's almost like the water we swim in um, so it's, it's, it takes some unpacking to see the, the connections, but in the same way as, as, um, industrial agriculture, for example, is high, highly, um, reliant upon technology, um, highly specialized, um, less and less people, you know, have like a decentralized control over, you know, what <laughs> in Marx's terms, we call the means of production, um, the same thing is true with human women's bodies, for example, you know, just just sort of outsourcing everything that's possible to be outsourced to um, the profit, a pro profitable mechanism, ways in which we can commodify um, human bodies, women's bodies. Um, and yeah, it, and a lot follows from that. But I think um, this is what sort of ties together my work in general, that um, my interest in women's issues is is born out of my, being a mother um and and kind of realizing the extent to which commodification and the profit motive has really um sort of impacted um some of the most sacred i would say um but also the most empowering aspects of what it is to be a human um, and have control over your own destiny self-determination you know self-reliance and all of that that um that idea of the sacred is something I think about a lot and whether or not it's really possible for people to continue having any conception of the sacred if they don't, if there's nothing upstairs, you know, if they don't believe in God, if it's not fitting into some um, theological or, or supernatural scheme, can we still think of things as sacred? I think people tend to feel that things are sacred. Um and, and would you say, I mean, bearing in mind, that, of course, that Paul Kingsmith is a Christian writer, so 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 he he is he's fitting the idea of the machine in, into into that um, comprehensive worldview that Christianity offers. Do do you see this idea of the of the machine as being fundamentally at odds with the idea of the sacred? Yeah, I do, and um, so this is something. I'm exploring on my podcast more and more um, re in recent months, which is um, I'm coming to the conclusion. Um, I guess let's step back a second and, and say um, in, I would, I would argue that in the industrial modern era, in the, in the era of nation states, you either have um, the outsourcing of social norms to um, the marketplace mm -hmm. or to the state. And it's a relatively new phenomenon to have um, expectations that social norms would be fully outsourced to these sort of I inhumane um, institutions. So like the nation state is a relatively new 
social technology. Um, and right now, the majority of the conversation is about, um, you know, leftists saying the nation state can handle the social norms we need um, to, to have a functioning society. And conservatives or more right-leaning people tend to think the market can handle those. Um, and I would fundamentally, uh, I think what what's missing from those left and right um, discussions is the ways in which um, social norms work um, interpersonally um, at the community level, at local, in between um, family members, um, in, in community members. And I think that there is fundamentally missing from most um, political discussions is this, um, this realization that, for example, the state just simply cannot enforce certain norms if they get completely out of control it, with anywhere as much um, power as culture can. So if you take that as an assumption, then, then it follows that whatever the culture is fundamentally does have to have a shared sense of what is sacred and what is profane to be able to make those judgments in between uh, family members or community members. Um, what I'm not convinced of is that there is there is a universal sacred and profane, but I, I am convinced that there needs to be some shared sense of what, what it is. Um, and it could be, um, you know, for example, like a overlapping, two, two overlapping Venn diagram type circles of uh, what is sacred and what is profane um, that are both Christian, but look different in different communities or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in localism as a big part of the question of how do we move forward? Localism meaning local norms, community norms, you know, that, that differ place to place for, for reasons, um, for important reasons. And so, um, but at the same time, I've also really been um, embracing more and more my um, my Christian upbringing um, and the sense that my sense of the sacred and the profane and my sense of what social norms, um, what what is good, what is the good life, what is an appropriate way to act are, are Judeo-Christian <laughs> in nature. Um, and I think it's okay to embrace that. I think um, one of the weird um, brain worms of modernity is this idea that it's like you must break with all um, traditions of the past because sometimes traditions came with some oppression and therefore we should throw the whole thing out. But I think you're missing so much when you throw out um, what is effectively um, iterative morality that moved through time because it worked. I mean, it sort of worked through generations and, and, and evolved in the way that it did because um, it was functional in different um, circumstances in different cultures and different material circumstances. So I think it would be, it, it's, it, it's the, the right move in the, um, current system is to sort of, um, I think both look back to those traditional ways in which people made clear what the, what was the sacred, what was a profane. Um, but without, you don't have to bring, you know, the whole of every, uh, past tradition or past institution, 
um, into um, your your modern um, decision making about you know how to live a good life or how to be a moral person. Um, I think it's it's important to let those continue to evolve, but not um, feel like the need to start from scratch. I had somebody on the podcast recently who was talking about, you know, there's a lot of um, empty churches in um, the UK, and I think we should try to to, to <clears throat> use those churches to. Um, his name is Adam Adam Greenfield. He came on with Dougal Pine. Um, and said, I think we should try to bring these churches. We should try to use them as community centers, and we should. Um, go there um, and, and have different rituals around the seasons and around people's parts of their life. And Dougal Hine was saying, you know, and what really works well is when there, there's like a founding mythology. I'm like, we're just describing a church. <laughs> um, we're really just describing a church here. Um, and it's funny because we a lot of people just end up sort of reinventing traditions uh, with different names. Um, but I do think it's okay to just, you know, a lot of people will, for example, um, be religious, but they'll look towards Buddhism or some sort of non-Western religion as a way of like exploring religiosity. And I think it's important to, um, and okay to look at your own heritage for, you know, figuring out those social norms of what is the good life and, and figuring out for, for you and for your own community, what is the sacred and the profane. And I would also just briefly add that, um, there is a way in which the sacred and profane can be worked out um through the like development of relationship and by that i mean um in a family you can make a family culture around what is good what is a good way to act what is a um you know what is appropriate morally and then you can you can build sort of morality through relationships you know in that relationship is the the sort of ways in which people act that is good and appropriate you know, how to be loyal, how to be thoughtful, um, how to, how to, you know, be there for people when they really need you to be. Um, I don't really think it needs to be a top down sense of what is, um, sacred and profane, but like a, a co-creative process by just sort of showing up and, and showing what works, um, is a way in which I think we can sort of think about moving forward. In, in developing the sacred and the profane. I'm so interested in this um, this sort of third way that isn't the market and isn't the state because I think so much of our politics comes back constantly to this dialectic between the market and the state and what was presented um, by, say, Tony Blair and, and other um, politicians of the of the of this century was the so-called third way, which was just a melding of the two. Um, Whereas a, a true third way, I was reminded um, when you were speaking about a conversation I had with a friend recently, who might be listening, hi, so, um, about um, help uh, help that mothers receive after they've um, had a baby because she's having a baby soon. And um, we were talking about the fact that hiring a maternity nurse, I don't know if that's what everyone calls them, but basically a woman who comes to your house and does loads of care for you for, you know, for, for pay, it's a paid service, Um is so invaluable but it's also something that you know in traditional societies you have done for you generally by um you know your sisters your cousins your your mother other female um kin neighbors etc or sometimes servants if you can afford it um and i was saying gosh everyone should have this <clears throat> and she said a kind of automatic response was oh so you think are you saying the state should pay for maternity nurses 
to come to people's houses and I said no people should just do it for each other <laughs> like that, that that third way is so unimaginable um in our politics right now the idea of as you say of localism of of interconnected at the sort of micro scale um is 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 something that I think has only recently and nowhere near enough um entered into political conversations yeah and I would say um to that. Um, just yesterday, I had an article come out um, in Unheard. And I think that there are, there is a whole tradition in the UK, in the United States. Um, but I would say, you know, specifically in the most developed economies in the world, that is neither what we think of as traditionally left, you know, state-based solutions or traditionally right market-based solutions. That is a sort of, um, plea for a, a living cultures. And I think um, in that um, vein is somebody like Emerson and Thoreau, but also Wendell Berry and Ivan Illich. And I wrote about Christopher Lash. Um, and, you know, basically the idea is there's a spiritual lack and the spiritual lack in some ways has to do with outsourcing um, the most important and most um the ways in which we can have the most agency in our lives to either the market or the state. And instead, the alternative way of looking at things, which is really kind of hard to describe because it's so diverse looking on purpose, um, is, is, an, is a culture where people are um, capable, where they show up for one another, where um, so much of what's been outsourced gets um, brought back into the conversation. Um, I had Ellen Sacassis on the podcast and, and he's an, uh, a, a big Illich scholar. And he was told this story about um, how he knew of these graduate students and I think researchers who all worked in this lab together. And one of their colleagues passed away at work. And, you know, everybody was unsurprisingly shocked by this. And, and one of the colleagues said, you know, I think we should talk um, to each other, you know, let's, let's sit and talk about this. Let's um, have a discussion. And another one said, um, no, we should probably bring in a bereavement counselor. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. And I think there are is so many examples like this, where people think like, I'm not capable. And this ties in with homesteading and homeschooling and showing up for your neighbors, uh, localism. When my, um, when my sister had a baby, um, I organized all her friends and said, like, let's all make a meal. Um, let's bring bring it by. Um, each of you will get a day. It'll be a nice way in which um, she won't have to have everybody coming at once to meet the baby. But little by little, people can drop it off. Don't stay too long, you know, 15, 30 minutes. Um, meet the baby. Um, give her something to eat um, that's that's good, that can get left, have leftovers. Um these little ways in which we can t pick up tiny bits of slack for one another and how distributed across relationships, um, it really makes both the state and the market much more obsolete. And I think part of the reason that this third way hasn't really taken off is partially because there's really no power brokers <laughs> that have an interest in um advancing something like this it w it really is kind of like a 
a populist um, in some ways point of view, which is that, you know, the, the power is in people for, for one another. And um, in my unheard piece, I was saying, you know, something along the lines of like homesteading and, and localism is just this way in which people can, can dip their toe in in finding a connection to nature and, and to address some sense of a spiritual malaise, the, the lack of, meaning in most people's work um and some of the comments were like you know this is utopian in nature and i'm so frustrated by that because um a utopian vision has uh has some sort of um lack of practical reality where when in when in reality what you need to do to be you know a good homesteader is just to get started and it doesn't matter how small it is to get started it's literally just taking a step toward some practical creation production as opposed to just finding meaning in either um, voting the right way or consuming the right way Um, but instead to be sort of the master of your destiny even in the tiniest way like having chickens um is a step in this, it's, it's a, the most practical step in the, the direction of, you know, self-determination. And, and I think um, a lot of people have been tricked into thinking, unless it's globally scalable in the sense of, um, you know, a, a perfect solution for everyone on the planet and can be implemented top down, it shouldn't be even considered. And I would say it's completely the opposite, this third way. It's, um, unless it makes sense in your particular life uh then you you should do it for you and your own life and and find ways that make sense that are particular to your place um but fundamentally that's that is what like human culture is it's this ways in which we find agency and capacity and the ability to produce for ourselves it's what we've we've always done really as humans is is find finding ways to interact with nature and and each other to to make culture and to take care of ourselves. Um, so bear in mind that you're speaking to a woman who has um, never managed to own a coriander plant without killing it. So I'm 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 by no means an expert in um, domestic agriculture, uh, but I am very interested in this idea of being of being um, sort of food self-sufficient and I think a lot of the time when people think about survivalism let's say so this idea of being of being self-sufficient uh people will think of guys in camo who have a thing about guns (laughs) whereas of course actually there's a there's a lot of space between only having enough food in your fridge to last you 24 hours and having enough food in your bunker to last you several years and I was um speaking recently to a a family friend who lives in Bermuda which is a very hurricane prone area. Um, and I was talking about survivalism because I was writing a column about it at the time. And uh, sh- her response was like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, they have um, multiple forms of power generator. They have a bunch of canned food and, and drinking water and all this kind of stuff. Just, just, just as standard because they live in a part of the world that's prone to natural disasters. Whereas in the UK where I live, we basically don't have natural disasters. So it's not something that people think about. Um, but I'm interested in 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 how you view this idea of people um, prepping without being preppers, if that makes sense. Sure. 
Yes. So um, a little bit of background. Um, I grew up in Chicago, you know, this in the city, South Side. Um, my my father's a firefighter. You know, it's true urban existence. So this is none of this is in my history or anything, um, which I think is important because it really it isn't, again, something that is in the realm of experts. Um, so, you know, I think part part of it is that I got a, a somewhat memed by studying sociology, environmental sociology, um, and realizing um, just how much of a um, how much of a precipice we're on in terms of potential social unrest, um, environmental potentially cascading environmental problems, um, the interdependence required for global supply chains is worrying. So I am. Um, I think most environmental sociologists are pretty firmly in the doomer camp in terms of um, business as usual being able to continue forever. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it might be a few decades from now where there's actual disruptions that, you know, I'll be happy that I have these provisions um, all set up. But um, I, I personally have the mission to sort of um, learn some of these skills and help others along who are interested um, and, and make it accessible, make it, um, make it normal. Um, again, I want to clarify that for most of human history, for most of the world, and still in most of the world, people have some sort of small scale self-sufficiency projects going on. You know, people have chickens, lots of people have gardens and fruit trees, a lot of people you know, make things at home regularly. Um, so it's really only in the m last generation or two in the most advanced uh, economies in the world where this is not a normal thing. So we're the anomaly. <laughs> um, and um, I would also say there's uh, one of the um, inspirations I've had for, for my work is a uh, um, a writer named John Michael Greer, who sort of talks about energy realism, sort of this idea that, you know, oil is a very cheap resource. It takes a lot of oil to make alternative energies. And therefore, you know, we just can't expect business as usual to continue on. Um, and he has a famous phrase, which is collapse now and avoid the rush, <laughs> meaning if you, if you ever, if you, if you were prepared ahead of time, um, then it doesn't become this like scramble in a situation. You have some skills, you know how to handle yourself. And so um, <clears throat> my husband and I um, in 2012 bought land in Uruguay in South America. Um, we moved here in 2016. Um, we have three little girls and basically we're just in the process of building out skills, you know, from being city city folks to being able to do things with our hands in some ways is like a, a practice in spirituality. <laughs> um, and, and then just to build out redund redundancies so that if any one system failed, um, you'd have some alternatives. So we have a generator, you know, we have a solar water heater to heat our um, water as opposed and an electric water heater too. So we've got multiple ways of heating water. We have a wood stove and also, um, uh, a heat pump, you know, heaters in the in the house. So, um, just these different systems. We have uh, we have big orchards. Um, I would love to um, develop a, a an olive vineyard. 
I would love to make olive oil eventually. I'd love to make um, uh, I'd love to make a vineyard, um, and make wine eventually. Um, we have t- some chickens now. We've had um, we've had cattle in the past. Um, we are trying to do something called regenerative agriculture, which we can get into what that means and how it works and what the the, the thesis behind it is. Um, <clears throat> and the idea is just to be stewards of the land, um, to teach our kids how how where food comes from in just simple little ways. Um, you know, having the chickens run around and the dogs and the and the cat. It's it's fun. It's it's lovely. And it doesn't have to be um extreme. It doesn't have to be like this Instagram cottage core fantasy to like even to have you anyone in a suburb could have a little, you know, container garden of potatoes and and the there's just a there's just a huge amount of efficacy that comes from that. This um sense of the ability of doing to to do things with your own hands to show your kids how it's possible to do that to have them um as they grow older take some responsibility for some of these chores i think it's just it's just missing from a lot of people's lives it's sort of a sense that you're able to do things and then another thing we're we've been working on um when we bought the property we have a, a br- old brick building that was i think built in the 20s 1920s um and had bats and multiple different creatures living <laughs> when we got here and um you know cl- slowly cleaning it out and renovating it we're getting very close to um being able to use the space we think we'll use it as like a sort of hangout space for our daughters and maybe a music room um so you know these kind of things where well, we didn't have any skills in masonry and my husband you know ripped the roof off and replaced it um you know just sort of seeing the the work of your own hands it's just real it's satisfying in a in a spiritually important way i think maiden mother matriarch is brought to you by keeper the world's most advanced matchmaking solution Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine and feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. Um, is it possible, do you think, to, um, to do any of this, to have any degree of self-sufficiency if you're living in the middle of the city. Because we brought a um, like an extra pantry cupboard thing to keep food in and I have accumulated a whole load of um, 
tins of chopped tomatoes and kidney beans or whatever and my husband pointed out and he's not wrong that our, our street would be on fire long before we got down to the last tin of kidney beans but it seems to me and I'm sure to many people that if you were to um if you're going to do this you have to go live in the middle of nowhere you have to go live in Uruguay or or in you know the 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 I mean, I don't even know where you live in the UK where you could have that degree of um, that amount of land and that degree of self-sufficiency, maybe the Highlands or something. What would you say to people who just can't do that? You know, they can't completely ditch their jobs. Um, they can't run away, um, run away to the circus, you know. Um, what can what measures can you take if you live in a city? So, um you know, I think there's a couple of um, ways of looking at the answer to this question. The first one is um, you're never, ever going to get full self-sufficiency. Almost nobody in the world has, has ever and, you know, is currently um, totally self-sufficient. Um, <clears throat> so um, the important thing is, I think, flexing the muscles of thinking about where your food comes from, but not just food. We can get it. We're, hopefully we'll get into it too, but just, you know, even things like um, skills in the home, you know, storing things, baking bread, um, making things from scratch, this, this like, you know, sort of skills of um, ongoing self-provisioning um, things like homeschooling, which is, you know, if, if, for example, there's something like a pandemic and everybody's working, you know, t doing remote schooling, um, are you able to step in and and think about how you would want your child to be educated? Um, <clears throat> so that's one thing. Another thing is um, thinking about where your food comes from and who you would need to rely on um, or where you want it to come from, I think is really key. And so even for somebody in a city, you could be thinking about who are the closest producers to me um, what do they produce? How much of my food can I get from this, um, from around me seasonally? Um, and there's something really lovely about that process too, because it's a sort of meeting your local farmers, thinking about seasonality and what would a local diet look like. Um, even something like going on hunting trips or fishing trips, um, you know, going apple picking, and st storing it yourself, you know, in the fall. Um, those are all just sort of little ways to just shift your perspective toward um, not thinking of yourself primarily as a consumer, but instead thinking about yourself as in a web of interdependence with others um, and not um, relying on the most precarious or longest distance um functions of the global marketplace to, to, to remain intact for you to be able to survive. Um, and, and it really, it's just a, 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 sh a small shift that can change your way of thinking about things. And, and it doesn't have to feel like, um, a burden. It should feel fun. It should feel exciting, like a challenge to sort of think about, you know, where do I live? Um, what, what could I eat that would be local, um, and seasonal. I think a lot of people are thinking more about things like probiotics, raw milk and kombucha and, you know, sauerkraut and these kind of things that have that are sort of more alive foods that in some way you can't necessarily get at the store because a lot of it is sort of requires tending by human hands. I mean, if you think about um, it's almost like an alchemy and you're 
kitchen if you're you've got a sourdough starter sitting on your um, counter and and maybe a um, a scoby which is a symbiotic scoby stands for symbiotic colony of uh, bacteria and yeast and this is how you make a kombucha um, it's a fizzy drink that has some um, you know sort of good bacteria in it um, very good for for gut health. Um, you know, it's it's just sort of fun and and it's a bit of science and a and a bit of chemistry. It's good for kids to learn about, um, but yeah, in general, it's just a sort of shift in mindset toward, you know, thinking about the aspects of your existence. Um, if something broke down in the, you know, industrial civilization, there's some sort of uh, natural disaster, human-made disaster, cultural disaster, I would say even the pandemic, I think, opened up a lot of people's eyes to, you know, we can't just assume business as usual for every aspect of our lives indefinitely. Um, if something happens like this that interrupts our daily schedules, would we be able to adapt? And there's a sort of um, way in which the skills toward resilience stack it's like you get into a situation where you're building out resilience and, and redundancies and um, your ability to do that sort of builds on itself in a virtuous cycle toward, you know, more capacity. Um, at first, it feels hard, <laughs> but as you build it, 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 you know, you just end up getting um, more and more capable and, um, and less spooked if anything goes awry, you know, if there's any sort of um, shock to the supply chain or anything like that. Um, you're just, you, you're ready with your, with your plan and your various redundancies. Let, let's try this, you know, let's adapt, let's figure it out. And, um, that was really helpful to me during the pandemic with three little kids at home. I had a baby at the beginning of the pandemic. I was able to like sort of think of my feet and not be stressed, um, and capable and just thinking, you know, okay, well, there's no school. What are we going to do? Like, you know, how, how do we approach this? Let's make a plan. Um, you know, something really empowering about that. So let's bring it back to sexual politics because I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to be devil's advocate for a moment. What some feminists would say, what some feminists watching would say is, um, this all sounds lovely, but I love my disposable nappies. I love my tampons. I love my washing machine. You know, Phyllis, Phyllis Schlafly was right that actually the washing machine liberated women more than uh, more than feminism ever did. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, yes, there will be some future disaster where there is a collapse and we're no longer able to rely on any of these things. But why would I... Why would I preempt that? You know, why would I... Um, why would I bring this horror on myself and deny myself access to this kind of liberation if I don't have to? Um, I I love my washing machine. I wish I had two, frankly. Um, what's your What's your response to that um, to that criticism? Yeah, I mean, I I agree about washing machines, especially. Um, I would not want to be trucking my family's clothes down to the river bank and washing everything by hand with, um, you know, scrub brushes. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, um, the, some of my work is knowledge work, you know, and that it is made possible by these domestic um, machines. Um, you know, just like everything else that I tend to advocate for, nothing needs to be taken to as extreme 
there's no no reason why anyone needs to take everything to the extreme logical conclusion um, of, you know, having some self-sufficiency means you need to be an anarcho-primitivist. You just, you simply don't need to take it to that extreme. Um, there's nothing that, that requires that um, logical exercise. Um, so yeah, I think, but I, I think that um, simultaneously, we need to be thinking about the ways in which um, technology can be liberating, um, but you're giving something up in return for um, for the use of this technology. And it, and it is in many ways a Faustian bargain. Um, you know, think, for example, we've never had higher yields of agricultural yields on cropland, um, but we're just absolutely destroying the environment in the in the meantime, we're just tilling up the soil, it's dust bowls um, coming. There's just the other day in Illinois, there was a car crash from a giant dust bowl. It's just all tillage agriculture there. You're just pouring chemicals on the on the land. It just, you know, washes off into the um, into the rivers and into the, all the waterways. Um, you know, there isn't just one indicator that matters, which is yields, you know, and which... <laughs> you know, a lot of our agricultural yields, they end up rotting away or getting destroyed because we're making too much for for need um, in some cases um, for certain crops. So, you know, the, the psychotic focus on certain parameters at the expense of others, I call this spreadsheet brain, which is, you know, the way in which we're just um, sort of motivated by certain measurable parameters that are completely um, out of balance with the whole of the problem that we might be facing. So, you know, yes, um, washing machines are good. We, however, we do not have a dryer. It's so sunny here and such nice weather. We don't need a dryer. And I, know, and it, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we don't really need one. In the UK, I can imagine there are months where you probably couldn't dry your clothes outside. Um, but, you know, it would be very costly, expensive. Uh, sorry, electricity is very expensive here. So, you know, there's really no need for it. And in some ways, you know, I think, oh, it would be so easy to just pop these clothes into the dryer. Um, however, you know, there are also sort of um, unmeasurable ways in which it's sort of nice to go outside and just have a moment to be hanging the clothes on the line and noticing the weather and there's these little routines that come about um, when you don't outsource every part of your life to machines and consumption um, that really are not measurable. And I couldn't make the case for them in spreadsheet form, um, but they do exist as, as real benefits. Um, and they're sort of in some ways, spiritual benefits, the, the capacity, um, the natural limits um, these, these are, these are fundamentally questions of the sacred and the profane. I mean, it's how we started the conversation, but fundamentally, you know, do we just lean into every convenience and supposed efficiency without any sense of what we're giving up? Um, what, what we might be violating that is in fact sacred. Um, and I think that's, that's fundamentally where my, where my life is focused is, is trying to answer that question. Um, I just want to ask one, one last question in this main part of the um, part of the show, and then we can 
Uh, we can get into details on um, uh, marriage and motherhood and, and, and more of how this fits with your um, your homesteading project. But um, how do you do other work? Because I'm sure, again, a lot of people will be listening to this thinking, yes, it would be really nice to kind of spend the time on 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 these on these crafts I mean goodness me since I've had I used to I used to be a really good sewer oh, I wow. sewed my own wedding dress and um and then since having a baby and work and everything I just don't do any of that and 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 yeah trying trying to trying to kind of crowbar modern life um into that slower pace of self-sufficiency it's really really tough um, how, but you seem to, you seem to have managed it. What's your, what's, what's the strategy that you've so, worked out? So yeah, this is actually a little bit, um, I, I was, I discussed this a little bit with Mary Harrington and, um, she interviewed me for her book, um, wonderful book, Feminism Against Progress. If you haven't, uh, yet gotten it, you should. Um, but she, you know, fundamentally, um, we think of our marriage and family life as the central project of our lives um, and everything else is sort of auxiliary. You know, if I have, um, if we we need work, you know, it's for money. Um, If we have vocational interests, those are secondary. Um, But the the major project is um, our family, our home. And because of that, um, I made, we made the intentional decision to move, you know, move, to Uruguay to have um, a sort of period of time where we were primarily parents and only secondarily doing part-time work. Um, But that was only made possible by living very, very frugally. Um, I wrote an article about this um, for Front Porch Republic called Family Over Fire. Um, Fire is short for financial independence, retire early. It's like a it's like a movement in, in the U.S. There's a lot of uh, sort of like finance bros who are into it. But it, the idea is you save up, um, you, you work really hard and earn a lot in your 20s and early 30s so that you can sort of retire early um, and focus on other things. Um, we kind of conceptualized retirement as, um, you know, it is sort of possible to downshift in your work for different periods of time in your life. Um, as opposed to work, you know, as much as you possibly can lean into your career to the extent possible and then retire at, you know, 65 or 68. And then, you know, you're kind of tired (laughs) and all your kids are grown and, you know, they don't really need you like, you know, they needed you when they were babies. So, um, so we took about a decade like this, um, where we're just sort of working part time remotely. Um, we saved up a bunch before we moved so that we had some buffer, you know, um, and I say that, but in this period of time, I earned my PhD and we started a school where we hosted students here in Uruguay. So it's not like I wasn't, um, working or, um, accomplishing things, but, um, you know, it was just a sort of different approach toward work and earning and career, um, where the primary consideration was family and the secondary consideration was making enough to live and, you know, and leaning into career and vocation. Um, now my three daughters are all school aged. And so I'm leaning further into, you know, my vocational work, my, um, career. I have a full-time postdoc research position, um, and so, you know, it's, it's possible, I think, to sort of go in career waves. Um, like I was saying with, with all my other answers, it doesn't have to be, 
um, some extreme of one thing or another. Um, I think that it's possible to, you know, it's not really have it all because I do think that there are totally ways in which working too much can make especially early parenthood just miserable. I mean, just horrible for everybody involved, just feeling like you're constantly strained. Um, so taking that period very seriously, like the under three-year-old parent period very seriously and thinking, you know, whatever it takes, I'm going to be with my kids. Um, that was primary. Um, and then, then after that, you know, I think you can just sort of ebb and flow how the family life changes, you know, and my kids, you know, are now starting to do after school programs. So it's like, you know, they launch, they, they leave the nest, they have their own interests, they have their own life. Um, oh. uh, Ashley, where can people find more of your work? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Rizoma School, R-I-Z-O-M-A School. Um, and at Doomer Optimism is my podcast Twitter handle. Um, from there, you should be able to find all the relevant links, doomeroptimism.com also for for where wherever you're uh, listen to your podcast, you can you can find find us there. Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Men Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at Louise perry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes and you can also access our chat community you can also support the show by subscribing on youtube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on apple podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try please also spread the word tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it to give it a shot um the word of mouth effect is really valuable. So we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing.